Good morning. For those of you who went to Israel, Boker Tov. Okay, too much too soon. Um, thinking about a verse in James chapter 1 that says, If anyone seeks or lacks wisdom, let him ask the Lord for it, and he will give it to him graciously without reproach. If anyone wants wisdom, just ask for it, and God will give it to you graciously without reproach. It will be given to you. But you've got to ask for it. Does anybody, anybody in here want some wisdom for life? Or am I the only one? I really need wisdom. Because life is really confusing. I get so backwards sometimes about what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe I just think too much. I don't know. I'm, my brother just had, he has a baby. It's about a year old. I say just, it's new to me, but it's not new to him. It was a baby. And I'm thinking about this baby. It doesn't really care about being wise right now, but good grief. This whole life is going to grow and learn and be asking his entire life, what am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing? Am I doing this right? What's the meaning of life? Life gets really confusing. Every time I turn around, it seems like there's an exception to a rule. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who said, I just almost want to give this thing up because there's so many exceptions. There's so many times where it goes one way and goes the other way. And I have a lot of grace for that conversation because it's true. This isn't as simple as it, as it sounds. I mean... Part of me thinks that that's why we need to gather every single week to figure this out and talk together. If it was just a one and done, it would have been done a long time ago. I got a lot of questions. When I got home from Israel, I mean, I painted a house with my friend Kirk, and we listened to a book on a tape, uh, the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the whole time I'm listening to this book be read to us, I'm thinking, man, this is a great story. But is this allowed? <laughs> Are we allowed to do this? I mean, is he a saint or is he a spy? Is there a lot of deception that's just sort of looked over just because of the way uh, the story went? He has the same Bible I do. This weekend, I'm the kind of uncle that puts his little nephews uh, in front of him before the fireworks start and says, look, there's a reason why we're doing the fireworks thing. And I want to tell you a story about George Washington and some brave men. But instead of telling these children who are asleep this story, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, they're taking over, they're taking over a country and, and, and rejecting the ruling authorities that are above them. They have the Bible that I have. Would I have come to that conclusion? Obviously, life is different for me than it was for them. I mean, when I examine myself, I think more so about, does God care if I drive five miles over the speed limit or not kind of thing? And not that that's anywhere close to taking over a government, but maybe it'll lead to that someday. Does he really care if I drive 30 to 25? Maybe. 
What do we do when there isn't a verse for that? What do we do when we're trying to figure out how, how, what life we're supposed to live and there isn't a specific yes or no answer? Should I go to the movies or not? My grandfather would not go to the movies. My grandmother would take us to the movies every single week. In my hometown, there's a movie theater that is a log cabin, and it's beautiful, and I loved it because there's all these animals in there. It's weird. Yeah, but it's... <laughs> Can we go to the movies? Should I buy an iPhone? Should I buy a Droid? Should I buy a Ford or a Chevy? What should I do? What do we do when there is no specific verse? We need wisdom. We need wisdom for our lives. How do we live our lives in the light of who God is for us and what he is? We need wisdom to discern. And I wonder if any of you this morning want to ask God for wisdom for your life. If you don't know which way to go or you don't know what's next for you. What would he say? He, he says it's, it's a promise in James chapter 1 verse 5. He will give you wisdom if you ask for it. And I wonder... If he would say to you, my dear child, whoever listens to my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man. That's like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock so that when it gets confusing and puzzling and when life starts to rain and water starts to rise and wind starts to blow, you have something that's sure. You have a foundation that you have built your life upon. But the fool is somebody who won't even try. A fool is somebody who hears my words, hears my wisdom, and won't even put it into practice at all. Builds his house on the sand. Builds his theology on the sand. Builds his family on the sand. So that when life gets confusing, when the winds blow, when the waters rise, it falls. I wonder if God would say to us this morning, if for those of us who do desire wisdom, would he say, I have dedicated books of wisdom for you. Start there. Job. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, for your wisdom, wisdom for your life, and you won't read it. You won't think about it and internalize it. Well, this summer, we've chosen to set aside eight weeks to do just that, to not waste, don't waste these weeks. We're going to study wisdom literature. The last four weeks, we've studied the life of a man named Job who had a lot of things and then suffered and lost everything. And how do we get wisdom from the, a life of suffering and loss? For the next four weeks, we're going to study a man who in the opposite way got a lot of things but needs just as much wisdom to figure out how to manage that and have a life of wealth. So please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's three books past Job, if you were just there, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And it's my pleasure to open up this book with you, for this is the wisdom of God. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word, Job chapter 1 and verse 1. These are the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
What's a man gained by all his work which he works under the sun? Generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun sets, and then it hastens back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind on its circuit till it returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. It goes to the place where the streams flow, and there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new. It's been already in ages before. There's no remembrance of things former. And there will be no remembrance of later things that are yet to come among those who come after. But I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to children of man to be busy with. But I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What's crooked can't be made straight. What is lacking can't be counted. I said into my heart, Self, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has been great, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much frustration. And he who increases knowledge also increases sorrow. This is God's word. We have a seat or remain standing, whichever you choose. <laughs> Father, we open our hearts up to your wisdom. Teach us how we should live life and what we should, what we should chase after and what we shouldn't. You've been speaking through your word Generation after generation. I'm sure that this man would agree with the verse that men are like grass. Flowers fade. It's all fading. There's one thing that will last forever, and it's your word. And so we dedicate this time for you. We say we're listening to your word. Come and speak to us, and I know you will even now. Amen. So I've been asked to introduce you to the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I hope to do just that this morning, that you walk away with some handles of what's going on in this book. I also hope that as we open up the first two chapters, that you would somehow be brought closer with assurance to to your relationship with the Lord. And that you would see things the way he sees them. And have a new inspired sense of of life and how to live. Oh, we'll do one thing at a time. So why Ecclesiastes? I got a couple of thoughts about Ecclesiastes before we actually get into it. Why are we doing Ecclesiastes? I mean, you don't necessarily see people lining up around the block to study the book Ecclesiastes. We don't even use the word Ecclesiastes at all. Some people think Ecclesiastes doesn't even belong in the Bible. 
And I can see that. I mean, it's kind of a pessimistic book sometimes. I mean, he, he, they think that this author, because of the doom and gloom attitude about things, is, doesn't even have a relationship with God. If you want to study Ecclesiastes with us this summer, something that helps me is to maybe read Ecclesiastes alongside of the first four chapters of the Bible. There's a lot of great connections that maybe we're even underpinning some of the writing of this book that you can find there. Elsewise, Ecclesiastes is a part of a wisdom literature. And I think it's a great companion to the book of Proverbs. So if you were going to study the book of Proverbs this summer, maybe you could read Ecclesiastes side by side. Because in Proverbs, Proverbs is kind of like Twitter. You know, you get these sayings, just one after another, and it's just like, okay, maybe one of them hits you, maybe one of them doesn't, you just sort of file it away for later. But Ecclesiastes is like this 10,000-foot view of the, of the biggest mountains that need to be climbed in life. It's like wisdom from a seasoned old person that just has been through so much in life. I mean, there's a difference between, like, say if you had a, had a World War II survivor who has been through like a concentration camp or something really heavy and they tweeted, God loves you. Versus somebody who just saw it on a bumper sticker and then tweeted, God loves you. I mean, there's a difference between a seasoned wisdom and a truth that can just be applied to life whenever it comes up, isn't there? This is Ecclesiastes. People think that Ecclesiastes is just this incoherent ramblings that doesn't arrive at a conclusion or is irrelevant to our time. I disagree with all three of those. It is not incoherent. He, he, he does have this dialogue that goes back and forth. Does life mean anything or not? You definitely see that. He's teasing out this idea. Is life, does life have a meaning? But he does have a coherent strand throughout this conversation that he has with himself. So arrive at a conclusion. Yes. He does arrive at a conclusion. Vanity does not have the final word in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 12, he says, this is the matter of it all, that you would obey God's commandments and live a life to honor him. This is the portion of man. Ecclesiastes is not irrelevant. A friend of mine wrote a poem called I'm a University Student Who Follows Jesus. And there's a line in that poem that always strikes me. He says, the ites of Joshua's day are the isms of today. I love that. The Amalekites, the Hittites of Joshua's day are the isms of today. And there are many isms addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes. Postmodernism. Deism. The Lord just spins the world and walks away and lets it go. Fatalism, whatever will be, will be. Chauvinism. I have found one man in a thousand that I can honor, but not one woman. You know, that kind of thing. Um, hedonism. Should we just live then and live however we want and eat, drink, and be happy? Cynicism. We live in a very cynical time. Ecclesiastes addresses all of these things and opens them up. It is not just 12 chapters of a sad old diary. It's wisdom from God. Wisdom for your life. Why Ecclesiastes? I have a couple other thoughts. It's Ecclesiastes in general. 
as Hebrew literature. I mean, Hebrew in and of itself is a very feeling, tasting, touching, hearing language, sensory oriented. But when you add some of this poetic feel of Hebrew, it starts to bring you places like on a journey of feeling, real deep feelings that maybe you couldn't, groanings and longings that maybe you couldn't have expressed in prose or just some other way of, of writing. Hebrews takes us to places that of tension, of great tension that we need to figure out that causes people to leave the faith and, and grow cold and, and become weary and anxious. Are there any artists in the room that maybe feel like the only expression that you can write about, sing about, or paint about is victory in this circle, in this group, or is, is triumph? It's not true. There are feelings here of, of defeat. There are feelings here of anxiety and worry. There are feelings that we're brought to here. And if you are an artist that feels like the only things you can express are victory, what will happen is what, who you are will become separated from who you are, from who you really are. <laughs> who you are in here will become a different person than who you really are underneath. You start to see that, there, that, that, that you'll start to what's the word for it, uh, separate that piece of your life. And as soon as you start doing that, your art and your expressions will lose integrity. Not only artists, but everyone can also connect to some of the emotion and the feeling of Ecclesiastes. I mean, he speaks to the monotony of life that some of us who just work nine to five jobs feel on Monday mornings when it's just like that pit in your stomach when the alarm goes off and you think, I can't uh, do this anymore. He speaks to that emotion that we feel when we believe that Matthew 7, 7 is true, that whoever asks, an answer will be given. Whoever knocks, the door will be opened. But sometimes it doesn't feel like the door is being opened or that we're getting an answer. If you've been having these feelings, Ecclesiastes might be the most important book that you'll read this summer. Ecclesiastes also addressed stuff that you can get and that can get in the way. God in Ecclesiastes shows us what life is like when God doesn't show us what life is like. In other words, God is showing us in Ecclesiastes, what happens when you chase after what the world offers rather than what God gives? Like, what's the thing? What's the thing that you got on the list that you got to have? It's the next thing. I, I get lost in eBay sometimes. I get lost in Craigslist sometimes. What's that next thing? I'm pretty sure I'm going to be happy if I get that next thing. If you've been in this cycle, it gets really depressing and really frustrating because as soon as you get it, you latch onto something else and you're never really there. If that's you and if that's becoming a problem for you, Ecclesiastes might be your best friend here very soon. Ecclesiastes also asks some really hard and practical questions. Like, what's the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? What is good and bad? If God is so good, why is there suffering in the world? 
Or maybe the most practical question of all, what is death? What does it mean to die? Which always leads us then to, what does it mean to live? And what is life? Ecclesiastes brings us into some really practical places regarding things like sex, drugs, uh, rock and roll, sorry, sex, power, and money. Ecclesiastes also eventually helps us see through the fog and brings us to a place of genuine worship again. A place where we worship the one true God only and live a life that is honoring to him. This is Ecclesiastes. And it might be the most important book that you read this summer. Well, who wrote it? Okay, we'll look at verse 1. These are the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. We think that that it's probably an older person that wrote this book, given by some nuances throughout the letter, like in, in chapter 12, when he says, Consider the Lord in your youth before your back is crooked, your bones shake, and your eyes are dim. Younger people don't necessarily think about stuff like that. And so, I mean, maybe he's kind of an older seasoned man. Obviously, the retrospective autobiographical look at the things in his life that we just read indicates that he, hey Dave, indicates that he has had a long life. These are the words of the preacher. That word preacher, when the Hebrew text was translated into Greek, actually is the word Ecclesiastes, which is where we get the title of the book. These are the words of the preacher. In Hebrew, the word is Kohelet. And that is the name, the title that this person chose to give himself by the book. He didn't choose to sign. There's no signature of who it was. But then he says, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, and in verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. <laughs> Solomon's looking pretty good for this at this point. This says there isn't really any other children of David that ruled Israel for more than one day, um, Absalom. But also nobody that's really claiming to be the wisest person ever. So if you need a context that you're really looking for, maybe it is Solomon. Maybe it is Solomon writing to a group of people, maybe even to his son Rehoboam, knowing of all the failures that he's had in life, all the regrets that he has, trying to write and to correct his, his son's path in some way. But he doesn't say. And so if you want to argue about that, that's fine. But the, if it is Solomon, it's the wisest person in the world choosing not to sign his name. And I'm just going to accept that wisdom and say he wants to be called Kohelet or the preacher. See, the Kohelet is somebody not just a teacher or a philosopher or somebody in a school, but he's somebody who's addressing a religious group. So preacher, in my mind, works really well for that. I mean, teacher could also work, but the preacher. What he says is the most important part, though. So let's turn our eyes to chapter 1. What does the Kohelet say? Yes, it's chapter 1 and chapter 2 that if you try and find satisfaction in the things of this world, you will be left empty. And the only joy, the only wisdom and knowledge comes from the hand of God. 
If you try and find satisfaction and fulfillment in things of this world, you will be found wanting and left empty. The only joy can come from the hand of God alone. So what he does is he starts to show us, illustrating that with his life journey. The first thing that he does, vanity of vanities, all his vanities, he says. Verse uh, 3. What good is it? What does a man gain from all of his work here under the sun? He starts to say, I, I went after kind of education element uh, aspect to it. I started to study. I started to study the way the world works, anthropology, the way people kind of work. I see generations come and generations go. The sun rises and the sun sets and then it hastens back and it rises again the next day, but it never stops. On the east side of Israel, there's this sea that's like completely closed off except for one river that flows into the top of it. And every year, the Jordan River flows water into this sea, but it's never full. In fact, it's actually getting... Less and less full every year. <laughs> and this is what happens when he, start, when he starts studying and, and seeking after the education. He sees that the, that the eye is never tired of seeing. The ear is never tired of hearing. Nothing is ever new that's being developed. There's nothing that is, that is going to satisfy this cycle. Oh, man. I just thought of a Pink Floyd reference, and my friend Dave was just here, and it's his favorite band, but he left. (laughs) I'll save that one for later. Um, He just says, it's all vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. Where's the next place that he goes? The next place that he goes, he said, I want to try and and become wise. He seeks after truth. So he starts going around collecting proverbs and collecting wisdom and becoming a very wise person, but he realizes that just, just learning what the problem is doesn't necessarily fix it. Finding out the answer doesn't necessarily make anything better. I mean, have you ever seen the commercial of the woman sitting on the couch with a nail sticking out of her forehead and her husband sitting next to her, and she says, I just want to talk about this. I have this sharp pain in my forehead, and I just, it's just causing me a lot of pain. And he's like, listen, honey, I know that there's just this nail I can just pull it. Don't try and fix me. Don't just try and fix it. I want to talk about this, all right? I want to talk this through. And he's just going nuts, thinking, I have the answer, but she don't want it. Sometimes, sometimes knowing the answer doesn't always just fix the problem. Look at verse 18. I mean, the more knowledge that he got, the more frustrated that he became. With much knowledge comes much frustration. I mean, sometimes you just got to turn NPR off, right? I mean, the more knowledge that you get, the more it's just like, okay, 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 enough. In knowledge and in wisdom and in education that he sought after for this fulfillment, to find something that would sustain, something that would last, he couldn't find anything. He starts to sing this song almost. I've seen what is done under the sun, but all has become vanity. A chasing after the wind. All has become vanity. A chasing after the wind. Chapter 2. He says to himself, okay, then let's try the pleasure thing. Come now and I will test you with pleasure and you will enjoy yourself. 
Well, the first thing that he does is he hires a comedian, of course. So he gets this guy to come tell him a lot of jokes. But what happens when you hear a funny joke, you laugh and then you stop laughing. And you need another joke. You laugh and then you stop laughing. There's never enough jokes. So he says, this is madness. And he goes to architecture in verse 4. He starts building things. I mean, that sounds good. I've never built anything, but it sounds like that would be really fulfilling to plan something and watch people build it. I'm sure he didn't build it himself, but to see the work of your hands become a blessing. But then he starts to realize, okay, a building, I just built something and I destroyed something to build it. So what good is that? The person that comes after me is probably going to do the same thing, just build a bigger and newer thing. Well, I can't leave my happiness up to the next generation. They're just going to forget about my name. And honestly, we've never found anything that Solomon built, really. <laughs> Maybe. So then he decides to go into the arts. He starts to hire singers. He starts to get uh, people around him to entertain him. But that doesn't last. He starts to collect shiny things like money and gold and treasure. But that doesn't really satisfy him because there's always more gold to get. And once you get it, you got to keep it. And that's not really going to make you sleep well at night. And then he goes for the sexual favors things. I mean, if it's Solomon, he gets like 700 wives and 300 concubines. Look at verse 10. I did not deny my eye from anything that I wanted or kept my heart from any pleasure. But even if he did that, and even if you do that, it will never be enough. Never satisfied. I mean, I think maybe a lot of our lives here would be, con- would be considered verse 10. I kept nothing from my eye and no pleasure from my heart. I, le- I just took, I went after it all. But is it ever enough? Is there ever any contentment found in just pursuing these things? All he can say is that song again. I have seen everything done under the sun, but all is vanity is a chasing after the wind. It's no different today. It's all evaporating. It's all disintegrating. You buy the brand new car, and then 10 months later, there's a cooler car that doesn't even need gas. <laughs> there's a cooler car. And it happens with everything. Speaking of gas, I talked to somebody recently who told me they never run out of gas. And I thought, we're all running out of gas. That's why we go to the gas station. But I must be misunderstanding them. I think what they meant was, never been stranded without gas. But then I also thought, that's peculiar. When I was 16 years old, easily twice a month I was stranded without gas. (laughs) It's not like I didn't have the money. I just wanted to push it, the tank, as far as it could go. And pushing it is exactly what I wound up doing with my baby sister. (laughs) Down the road. 25 miles from school. Oh, I'm just joking. <laughs> We're always running out of gas. I don't have to convince you of that. We're running out. The wedding at Cana that ran out of wine is, is, is true back then as it is today. We're running out of gas. The question is, are you going anywhere? Or is the car just sort of idling as it's running out of gas? <laughs> we got stuff to do. 
This city is so beautiful. We have so many things to do. 24 hours a day, we can do something. But the question is, are you really doing anything? Words everywhere. Sermons and then songs and then, and then emails and texts and then the Twitter thing. And then there's words everywhere. But are you hearing anything? I'm afraid that some of us are just eating and drinking and are alive but aren't living. Are you living? It's all just vanity, he says. And I wonder if the reason why he's so obsessed with this word vanity, I mean, he uses it like 38 times in these 12 chapters. And I wonder if that comes from a very common place for someone who is at the end of their life and thinking about the end, the end, the end. What is this all for? He uses the word vanity. It's like in Hebrew, havel is like a breath on a cold day that just sort of disintegrates or it vanishes. And I wonder if this word has led him, he's he's been led to this word because of some of the story in the Old Testament that it's related to. The first place in the Bible that this word Havel arrives is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. Eve bears a second son. His name is Havel. In English, it's Abel. Abel. Abel's story informs that word. Everything about Abel's story is a vapor, is gone. He's here in verse 2, he's gone in verse 8. And nobody speaks of him again until Jesus says, you've been persecuting the prophets from Abel and until now. Or in Hebrews 11 when it says his blood still cries out. It's gone. And Abel becomes, because if you don't know the story, his brother killed him. (laughs) That's where we get Cain and Abel. Okay, Cain, his brother killed him. And He becomes then the first human to have ever died or ever experienced the result, the end result of sin. He becomes the father of all things that are deteriorating, that are disintegrating, and that are vanishing. Thinking about that, I wonder if the author of Ecclesiastes is saying it's able, able. All things are, life is just a bunch of ables. Everything is just here and it's gone, it's vanishing. And at the end of the day, he's right about that. All the things that we can see in this physical world are vanishing. All the things that we look at in the mirror are deteriorating and getting older and turning into dust. From dust I came to dust I will go, right? Abel represents the result of sin. And mark my words... Sin destroys relationships. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, God and Adam. Sin destroys relationships. When you start bringing God into the picture in Ecclesiastes, I want to I make that observation right now. When the writer of Ecclesiastes starts making observations about God, things start to make sense. Verse 17, things are getting a little rough when he says, at this point, I begin to hate life. (laughs) But then look at verse 24 of chapter 2. 
There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find joy in his, in his work. This is what I've learned from God. This is from his hand. For apart from him, apart from God, who can eat and who can have joy? For to the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to the one who pleases God. And that's vanity, the chasing after the wind. That's Abel. You see, God makes sense of all of this stuff. You can't even eat without, you can't even enjoy eating without God. Think about that. Have you ever started eating something really good and thought, I don't want to finish this because it's so good? It happens to me all the time. I get sad after I'm done eating it. It's like that phrase, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, without God, you can't even have enjoyment in eating. Just chasing after the next meal. You're chasing after the next good thing. You're always going to be hungry again. You're always going to need to be filled again. There's no joy. It's just chasing. It's just chasing the wind. And I think the key to understanding this is in the phrase that he uses over and over again. I looked at everything under the sun. What does it mean to look at things under the sun? Well, everything that's under the sun that you can see. Things that are lit up. This is all under the sun. The physical world. The things you can find and experience and touch and know. I've looked at all these things under the sun, he says, and I've come to the conclusion at looking at them in and of themselves. It's just vanity. It's things that are fading. It's all falling apart. But the Christian sets her eyes on things above, looks beyond the sun, and starts to realize that only through, through God can I have any of the enjoyment in the things here. That God set the things up here in this physical world so that we can experience and know him. In Romans chapter 1, he says that the invisible qualities of God are being known and revealed through nature. Jesus says, you eat bread. I'm the bread. It's a prayer that Chelsea and I pray before our meals. As we take this food in, we'll live a little while longer. But if we take you in, we'll live forever. Show us how you are revealed in the breaking of the bread. When you chase after all the things that are under the sun just for fulfillment, you will be left empty because it's all vanity. But if you receive from the hand of God all the things that are under the sun with humility, you can have joy. You can look back on your life and really see that you've been content, that you can have contentment. Otherwise, it's just a chasing after the wind. So you have a choice. Either, verse 25, be the one who is a sinner and is constantly striving to get something. Or be the one who pleases God and receives joy from him. See, Jesus talks about this same thing in John chapter 3, doesn't he? He meets up with this guy named Nicodemus who also has some big questions that he wants to ask the Lord. And Nicodemus comes to him and he says, Rabbi, I know that you are from God, for you, no one could do the things that you have done unless they were. Okay? He said, Jesus, I've seen what you have done, 
And I have then concluded that you are at least from God, from what I've seen from you. And Jesus says to him, there's something you don't see, Nicodemus. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It's not just about the things that you've seen me do. There's a belief that you have to attach yourself to. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? Am I supposed to go back in my mother's womb and be born, just born again? You see, you're still missing it. You're still chasing after the physical side of things. It's more than that. All of these things are like shadows, shadows of things to come that teach you about the invisible nature of God. See, Nicodemus, you're like somebody who's stuck inside of his mother's womb still. And all you know is life there. If you believed in Jesus, if you believed in me, he says, that you would be born and you would be able to see how much, how big life really is. You would be able to see what's all really out there. This all would start to make sense if you would have a little faith. We need to add faith to the physical things. And Jesus references then a story from the Old Testament dealing with an inward poison. He talks, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a story in Numbers 21 that talks about these people that got bit by these venomous snakes that is poison coursing through their veins. Jesus Remember that story of how Moses then lifts up this bronze serpent. Whoever looked at that, they would be instantly cured from all that poison inside of them. Just like that. You've got a poison inside of you. It was inherent. You've got this inherent poison that's causing death. That's been there ever since Adam and Eve fell from the garden. That's been there ever since Abel died. It's a result of sin. If you look to me, though, you can be cured and healed from that poison. And then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believed in him, whoever believed in him and received him is the person who died the death that Abel, the vain death of Abel. Whoever received him wouldn't wouldn't perish like a wouldn't perish like a vapor, but would have life, would have eternal life. So I want you to pause for a moment and just consider. If you've looked, if you've really looked to Jesus to, to show you that life that he promises you, if you've received him as the answer to all your problems. the first time you've started to really it's been Holy Spirit's revealing to you that you've been chasing after the wind and you're tired of it. and you're tired of just running and, and buying things and, and, and trying to get fulfillment and all the things that the world has been offering you. this morning and all it takes is for you to say Jesus I'm thirsty like the woman at the wall in John chapter 4 
I will give you some water that when you drink of me, you will, you will never be thirsty again. All who are thirsty, come to me. Maybe for the hundredth time you've heard this message and you've just been in a rut where you've just thought that I have the wisdom, I have the ability to make my own decisions and I'm going to rule and be the king of my life. And right now you're starting to say, I'm tired of this chase. It's all vanity. And all it takes is for you to turn and, and look to him. And say, I receive you as the king of my life. And the leader that, that leads me into, that leads me to still waters, that leads me to a place that is fulfilled. We have a word for that Messiah. Jesus, you are my Messiah, the King of my life. addressing our hearts and for, and for actually offering us something that would fulfill us. I want to thank you for giving us another path, a different way. And for telling us about the, the, the broad path that leads to destruction that, that many people are on and showing us, saying, follow me down the narrow path that few find. The road is, is, is it well-worn? But follow me down that path. Thank you for dying the death that I should have died. The, the, the vain death of Abel. And thank you for Ecclesiastes.